The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Please turn, if you would, to Psalm 139 in God's Word. And last couple of weeks we were looking at Psalm 145. And I want to take just a couple more weeks here this week and next week in Psalm 139 to, to finish this series on God before we start a new series in the book of Exodus. There's, there's two more attributes that we didn't see in our studies through Romans of God, the omniscience of God and the omnipresence of God. What that means is God is all-knowing and He is all-present. And I want you to look for those truths as I read The heading of Psalm 139 says, David wrote this for God's people to sing. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. There, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. This is the word of our God. It's a powerful word. It's, James Boyce called it applied theology. It has head and, and heart. Last week, Cliff preached on the nearness of God. As Psalm 145 says, He is near to those who call on Him in truth. But this psalm takes that a step further. Even if you don't call on Him, even if you're trying to get away from Him or trying to flee from Him, He is there. There's nothing outside of His care. There's nothing outside of His knowledge. Everywhere that man can be, God is present there. There's nothing He doesn't know. There's nowhere you can go from Him. And so I want to look at this psalm under the headings of God's omniscience. God's omnipresence, and then our obedience. I don't know if the slides will work, but it's easy to follow along. God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, and then our obedience. Omni is the word for all. Science is the word for knowing. So this is that God is all-knowing when we speak of his omniscience. And to David, this is very personal. This is not theoretical. David uses the personal pronoun I or me or my 14 times in just the first few verses. 
This isn't just about God knowing all things. This is about God knowing all things about me and, and God actually knowing me deeply and personally is, is the language and relationally. So God knows the name of every star in the, in the universe and the heavens, stars that we will never see. He knows their names, but he also knows the number of the hairs on our heads. And he knows the hopes of our hearts better than we know them ourselves. The, the big idea of this first section is God knows everything I do or think. God knows everywhere I go. God knows every word I say. And God knows every need I have. First of all, God knows everything I do. And so under this first heading, the outline, God knows everything I do, verses 1 through 2, David starts in verse 1 telling the Lord that he has searched David. He's known David. And this word for searched is the word they would use for excavating or spying out or, or examining, going as they went into the promised land, they're exploring it. Or it was also used for someone who would thoroughly examine someone or a situation or investigate or interrogate. Or it was used of a miner who would be not leaving any stone unturned. The idea here is this is what God does with me. He, and he gets beneath the surface of my life. The word know there, he's, he's searched and he's known at the end of verse 1 is, is, is a Hebrew word that's repeated several times. You know me, and then verse 2, you know when, and then verse 4, you know it completely, every word that I say. And then verse 6, the same root word, he says, this, this kind of knowing or this knowledge is just, it's just too wonderful. And again, this is very personal in verse 1. This is me. And it's not just past tense. You have known me. This is present tense. In fact, he prays in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Keep searching me. Keep knowing me as you do. And so this is how the psalm starts and ends. Searching and knowing. And, and that, that, that's a bookend. And, and what that di- does is, is it shows us when it begins and ends with that that this psalm, this is, what, this is the major message or a main point of the text. God searches and, and knows what I do and why I do it. And even better than I can, we don't even know our own hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But he says, I, the Lord, search the heart. He knows the heart. Even though we can't fully know our own heart, we like to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but God sees fully what we can't. And then verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. So when I sit, when I rise, the idea there is, and everything in between, everything we do, walking or, 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 or resting, activity and inactivity, coming and going, and all of the ordinary acts of life in between, God knows we don't like thinking about Big Brother sometimes, thinking about a surveillance state, or just thinking about how, how spooky it is when you're talking about something and then you start searching things or on your computer screen or things, things start come up for, coming up that you didn't even want to see ads for, for things. We, we don't like this, this concept of, of, of people knowing and, and seeing and, and even just going around and there's, there's cameras all over the place this whole big brother idea, we, we need to realize that 
that there is much more than that, a big God who sees and knows everything you're thinking about, whether or not you say it out loud. He is watching all the time, but he is a good, you can trust him. We can't, sometimes we don't trust much of what's going on in the world. You can trust this God, but he is a a big God who is always all seeing and all knowing, and he knows the secret things you do. He knows the struggles you have. He knows the addictions or the things you try to keep hidden from others. He knows those things all the time. He knows all of them. And verse 2 says, you, goes on to say, you discern my thoughts from afar. And so this is the second subpoint. God knows every thought I have. He, he first knows everything I do, and then he knows every thought I have also in verse 2. He can read my mind a mile away. And the original language, you, is emphatic. The idea is you, and you alone, Lord, you know this. You know my thoughts. None of us can truly know someone else's thoughts. We can't read minds. We need to not try to. This is important in in relationships to not just assume or assert or or just make judgments based on what we think they think. First Corinthians four or five says we're not to judge things like motives and intentions of the heart before the time. The Lord is the one who's going to reveal those things on the last day. We need to ask. We need to not assert, not assume. We need to ask and draw out, but God never needs to do that. God does sometimes, and the Lord does sometimes, ask people questions to draw out from them. But really, part of that process is for them to even be thinking about it and and drawing it out from them. But God doesn't need that information. Solomon prayed this, You are the only one who can correctly know the motives of all people. But God can use His Word to help us discern our own thoughts and intentions in light of his truth. So Hebrews 4, that familiar passage, says God's word is active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And, and part of what it does is it cuts, is it is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no one, it says, is hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the message of Psalm 139 as well. Our thoughts are hidden from the sight of other people, but they're not from God's sight. There's nothing hidden from God's sight. He can see from afar our thoughts, every thought, every motive, that we are accountable to Him. It is all laid bare. It is all before Him who is all-seeing and all-knowing. Who of us here would want our thoughts to be playing on the PowerPoint screen during church. Who, who would want during announcements you walk in and it's, it's showing this your name and your thought and it's just cycling through all these thoughts that you've had during the week or maybe even your thoughts while we were singing, your thoughts going up on the, on the screen. None of us would want that. But our, our thoughts can even while we're in church go places they should not go. God sees all of that. It's all exposed to him. Any excuses the word of God will cut through. And that's really a scary thought to know that God knows my every thought. It's a scary thought to know that he knows my every thought. 
But God and his word go deeper into a person than any surgeon or any psychiatrist or psychologist can. And there might be times where you're tempted to entertain or indulge sinful thoughts. And you think, well, I'm not acting them out. I'm just indulging them. Or, yeah, I thought that, but, I, but I'm not going to say it. But I sure am going to think it. God sees all of that. And it's in broad daylight to him. And God judges thought, word, and deed. Not just what we say or do, but our thoughts as well. So we need to repent on that level. We need to renew our, our mind. We need to, Scripture says, take every thought, what? Captive and make it obedient to Christ. We need to actually deal with our thoughts. Because God knows every thought I have. And then the third subpoint: God knows everywhere I go. Verse 3. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. So from his daily walk to his nightly lying down, and again, everything in between, 24-7, day in and day out. Everything in between. He is always tracking us. We're always being staked out in that sense. And I like the New American Standard wording. You scrutinize my path. It's a different word. He scrutinizes our path and it says you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. He's intimately acquainted. Again, this is not just informational. This is relational knowing. It's an infinite and intimate knowledge. And this scrutiny should actually give security to a believer who's trying to live right and, and walk with the Lord. But it's scary if you are trying to live in secret sin because there is no secret sin to God. He knows what you do in private. He knows what goes on in your bedroom. He knows where you go online or, or what you search for or what you surf channels for. He knows all those things even if no one else does. He searches. And the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful. Eyes what you look at. Be careful. Little feet where you go, as the little children's song says. God knows everywhere I go, and God knows every word I say. Verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. The New American Standard says, you know it all. God is the only true know it all. In a good sense. He, another version says, he knows it completely. Exhaustively. Everything there is to know. He, he knows all the time. He, God fully knows and he hears. Think about this. People are talking all around the world right now. God can know and hear all the words of over 7 billion people on the planet simultaneously. And what's amazing is that he knows what they're going to say before they say it. They don't even know what they're going to say sometimes. He knows. I mean, I struggle to focus on one conversation at a time without distractions. It doesn't always go that well. Paying attention to actually words. God knows those words he completely knows every word before it's heard, before it forms on the tongue. He knew it. Isn't it amazing to learn that God never learns? God is never reacting. 
or being surprised. He knows the future in reality. He knows the future in, in potentiality, every possible contingency. He exhaustively and infallibly and perfectly knows. He knows actions and attitudes. He knows us inside and out. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows every word you or I will ever say before we say it. Before it even forms on our mind or forms on our tongue, he knows it completely. And if you know your words are being broadcasted, that should affect how you talk to people. That should affect how you talk about people. If you know this is being recorded or this is actually going forth. I remember one time I was at a wedding rehearsal and the pastor had one of these earpieces on and he was doing the rehearsal with the family and then he the rehearsal finished and I think the sound booth people went away and he walked to the bathroom and his his microphone was still on and he was talking to someone in the bathroom and I'm just thinking oh man I, I, I'm, I hope this doesn't go badly I'm just imagining him saying wow did you see that mother-in-law or just something like that thankfully he was a, a good godly man and it wasn't too embarrassing but just if if he knew that everyone in the whole room was listening to this conversation i i suspect it would have made him think about what he was saying but that's the that's the point here our words are being broadcasted in heaven we need to think about what we are saying knowing that god is is there and so just flip over to psalm 141 verse 3 just across the page this is a good Application of this point, Psalm 141.3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to evil. And it it goes on, but I think verse 3 especially, Lord, help me to guard what I say. Set that watch over the door of my lips. Because God knows what you're about to say, so ask his help to guard those words, to, to be slow to speak, as James says, and quick to listen, or pray like another psalm. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Because he knows Every word I say, and then the next one, he knows every need I have. He knows every need I have, and he keeps me. Look at verse 5. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's, it's high. I cannot attain it. You've heard the expression, well, I know that like the like the back of my hand. This is deeper than that. God knows you better than that in his hand. Literally, in the Hebrew, it's, it's the palm of his hand. But, but the image is, it's, it's like he's, he's covering you. It's like he's, he's, he's cupping you there with, with his hand to, to keep you safe. He holds you fast, as other psalms would say, and, and as we sing. He, he knows your needs and your fears, and he's, he's not going to let you go, is the idea. When it, his hand is, is on us, he, he hems us, is the language. 
Like, like, the, like the edge of a, a garment, uh, another writer says, we know only the fringe or the, the hem of his ways, like the hem of his garment. But even in, in Scripture, we see this image of people looking to the Lord and believing if they could just touch a hem of the Lord's garments, that there is, is healing there. Or maybe this image of, of garments would be helpful to think of some of the moms who have, who have newborns with them, and they have this garment Wrap. I'm sure there's a name for it, but it, it keeps the baby close and in a safe space. And, and the idea there is, is they're, they're kept safe. They're, they're close to, to your heart. Or, or you could think of a, a kangaroo pouch that God designed. And it's that image there is that, that little roo or what are they, Joey? I don't know what they're called, but it's safe there. It's next to that, to that mother. And Jesus used this language for being hemmed in being surrounded. There's no way out. And that's a good thing. If it's him, if it's his hand behind and before us, it's almost like the image of he's, he's got his, his hand here and his hand before us. It's, it's all around us. And Jesus spoke of his hand. He, he actually showed physically, he put his hand on people. He laid his hand on lepers and and those needing healing, and that woman with the bleeding issue for 12 years, and the girl that he raises from the dead, and he takes her hand. He shows grace even with, by laying his hand on people, and he says this, I know my sheep. They will never perish. And he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. So he knows them, just like the psalm was talking about. And his hand, his hand that's laid upon them, if you're one of his sheep and he knows you and you know him, no one is going to take you out of that hand. This is an almighty hand. This is an omnipotent hand. It's a protective hand. And it encloses us, some of the translations, or it hedges us in. It's underneath me. It's, it's all around me. It's all-sided. It's all-sufficient care for, for all of my needs, and it's keeping me in Him. It's Him that keeps us in Him. All that we've needed, His hand has, what? Provided. That's part of the image of His hand. And this language of God's hand sometimes emphasizes blessing, like in Genesis, or protection, like in Exodus, or God's control. Everything is in his hand. The heavens are marked by the span of his hand. It's, it's his handiwork. I mean, this is the, the hand of the one who created all things. That hand, that almighty hand is that all-knowing and all-loving hand that keeps us. And it's behind us. There, there's, there's none who can attack from, from behind, from, from the rear. And, and that was a big thing in their day. If you were going on, on trails where bandits might come, you, you always wanted to make sure no one's going to come behind. God's, God's hand is there. He's got you there. And then before, he's, he's searching out the path. He's more than enough to, to meet whatever we will face. And his hand is on me. And again, this, this language is like a, like a child maybe would, would put his hand or the hollow over another. And maybe he's got this... This frail insect, it's vulnerable, but he's holding it there, and he's holding it carefully in such a way that he won't crush it, but he's, he's keeping it safe from, from getting away. God knows our needs. He knows our frailties. 
He knows our insecurities. Our scripture reading earlier says he, he's like a father with his children, having compassion because he knows our frame. He knows how we are made. He knows we are but weak, frail dust of this world. And he knows us. That knowledge is wonderful, David says. When you really think about that kind of knowledge, it's wonderful if, if you know this Lord. And that word for knowledge is used in the most intimate love relationships. That, that kind of love knowledge is amazing. J.I. Packer wrote this book, Knowing God, many years ago. Knowing God, he says the word know and used of God in this way is a sovereign grace word. It, it points to God's initiative in loving and choosing and redeeming and calling and preserving all because he knows his, his knowledge involves personal affection, redeeming action, covenant faithfulness, and providential watchfulness towards those whom God knows. So like another psalm says, God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the, the, the knowing that is a saving, knowing relationship. It's salvation. And so Jesus would say on the last day, he's going to tell some people who thought they were believers, did all these great things in his name, depart from me. I never, what? Knew you. And that only makes sense if there's this sense of knowing that refers to a love relationship. We never had that relationship, the Lord is saying to some of those people. And so I need to ask you, do you know Jesus? Do you have that mutual love relationship with him as your Lord and Savior? Do you know him personally as your Savior? Do you know him? Do you have that relationship? And if not... You need to know that this hand that is being described here, this hand is open to you. This, this palm, remember when he was resurrected, he showed his, his nail-pierced palms even to doubting Thomas. And if you will confess your sin, confess your sin that he already knows. If you will come to him and trust in him and his life and his death and his resurrection for your sin, all those sins that he knows that other people don't know, there is forgiveness in him. It's too high to attain by works, but if you will come in lowly, humble, repentant faith to Him as your Lord and, and, and fall upon Him and, and beg Him to have mercy on you, a sinner, there is grace, there's forgiveness. You can become one of those sheep who know Him and He knows you and He holds you in His hand safe and forever. This is the Lord, the one who knows you, who calls out to you through his word. And, and what is amazing about this grace is that God knew me completely in sin and he still chose to save me. God already knew all of us fully before he chose to save us. And it wasn't because of good things about us. It wasn't because he knew some good that we would do or that what we would choose on our own. No, God, God had to, he knew everything and he knew that in spite of our sinful rebellion, for reasons I can't understand, he chose to save me anyway. And you, if you are in him and just know if you are in Christ, there is no sin you can do that will surprise him or that will make him change his mind. That he shouldn't have known you and loved you in that way. There's no skeletons in your closet he didn't already know about. When he foreknew you, that's the idea. He, 
Uh, he, he knew us in that way and predestined you is the language of, of Romans. And that knowledge is, is just too wonderful to think about God knowing all of that and still choosing to save us. That knowledge is too wonderful, but David's not done. That's his knowledge. But the second section is God's omnipresence. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? So this is the second part in, in our outline. And as we think about God's presence, sometimes in the Old Testament, there's a sense in which this word presence is used of what was local and visible. So think of the tabernacle and that glory cloud that comes down. That's spoken of in, in some ways as God's presence coming to him and to his presence God's Spirit in this passage is with all. We know from, from the New Testament, as Jesus said, he's, the Spirit is within believers in Him in, in a special way. But verse 7 is speaking in a general way of God's presence. So think of His special and His general presence. His special presence is only with His people in that special love relations. This is His presence to bless, as Wayne Grudem explains it. And then there's his general presence, which is what verse 7 is emphasizing. With all people in all places in the universe, all locations, not just his love relations, and not just his people, all people, and even unbelievers who may try to get away. His spirit and God's presence you cannot go away from. There's nowhere you can go where God is not already there. Sometimes as kids, we, we go and we hide somewhere where we think they won't find us here. There's nowhere you can do that with God. Jonah tried, right? He tried to flee from God's presence. He got in a boat. He didn't get away from God. Adam in the garden, who was in the very special presence of the Lord, like we haven't seen since, walking with him apart from sin, and yet he sins, and where does he go? He tries to hide in a bush, and behind fig leaves. That didn't work. You can't run. You can't hide from God's omnipresence. He's illimitable. He's inescapable. So this is his general, universal presence everywhere at all times. A kid, once trying to process this, asked his dad, so if, if, if God is everywhere, is God in my ice cream cone that I'm eating right now? And his dad said, uh, um, yeah, 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 ask your mom on that. <laughs> you know, th these are things that kind of blow our mind, but we, we do need to make some theological distinctions that om omnipresence is not pantheism, that everything is God, or that, that nature in particular is God, because there's New Age people who will speak in those kind of terms. We need to have a creator and creation Distinction. God is above and apart from, and he's not limited by what he made or by man-made places of worship. And so Paul had to explain this on Mars Hill in Acts 17. He says that the God who made heaven and earth doesn't dwell in temples. And he says he is, he is not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So even these unbelievers he's, he's talking to, he said, God's not far and it's actually, whether you recognize it or not, it's actually in him that you're alive right now. That you 
move, that you can breathe, that the fact that you have being, that's God's spirit in a, in a general sense is what sustains all life, as, as other scriptures say. But then Jesus also said his spirit convicts the world of sin. And so God's spirit is active even in the world right now, even in places where Christ is not yet worshipped. He is convicting people and through their conscience But then there's the special presence of the Spirit that Jesus talked about that only indwells us who believe. But Jeremiah 23 said, God is near at hand as well as faraway places. And God says there, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth? That's the biblical language. I can see everything. I I fill heaven and earth. And yet he's above it. He's transcendent. It may be a good poetic expression of this was Francis Thompson in The Hound of Heaven. I don't know if you've heard of that, but here's part of it. I fled him down the nights. He's trying to flee from God. Down the nights and down the days. I fled him or down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter from those strong feet that followed after Now of that long pursuit comes at hand. The brute, that voice is round me like a bursting sea. Thou fliest me. All which I took from thee I did but take, not for thy harms, but that thou might seek it in my arms. This is God speaking. I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. He's describing this. He's trying to get away from God. He's trying to flee all these different ways. And, and, and God is, is pursuing him. And, and, and God says, you can't, you can't flee from me, but I'm doing all this so that you might, as, as Paul says, he's not far from us, that we might grope and reach out for him. He's, he's there. His hand is, is offered to you in the general call of, of the gospel. And what David in his inspired poem is saying here, you can't flee from him who's always at hand. Heaven will hound you and it will hunt you down. And it is God's love that is present and that is pursuing those he's going to save night and day. Dark and light. And he, David talks about death or life in verse 8. If I ascend... Psalm 139, verse 8, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, that's a poetic way to say, if I could rise with the, if I could ride that sunrise, or if I could even travel, you sometimes see the sun coming up and the, the beams are like shooting across the sky. If I could travel with the speed of light across the sky. And then he says, if I could dwell Verse 8, in the uttermost, verse 9, parts of the sea, verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me. So he's going from the heights of the heavens to the depths of the sea, the life and afterlife. God is there. If I could go as fast as the streaking rays of the dawn, if I could go as far as galaxies could go, if I could dive to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, or if I could even die and lie in the grave and, and, and leave this land of the living. That's what Sheol means there. We're still with him. Even absent from the body, for a believer is present with the Lord. There's no height, there's no depth, there's 
Not anything in all creation, as we heard earlier, that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is that great truth that Paul celebrates in Romans 8. There's a man named John Franklin who was an Englishman in the 19th century Navy who was credited with discovering the Northwest Passage and, and was searching for the Arctic Passage. And he traveled and, and was in the really the, the, the uttermost, farthest part of the sea that anyone had ever gone to up in the Arctic. And they hadn't heard from him for a long time. His wife spent a fortune looking for him. And they finally found his boat. And it was frozen. And there was two bodies in there. And, and there was also a, a Bible that was there. And as they found this Bible of John Franklin, before he died, he had Psalm 139, 9-10 underlined in the King James. If I should dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. He, that truth sustained him to the end, even though he was far away and couldn't get in touch with anyone else and they couldn't get back. God was with him. And that was a great comfort to him to know he's with me wherever I go. Think of all the promises in Scripture. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He's with you. He is ever present to help in time of need. There's nowhere you can go outside of his presence and his grace, he promises, I will never, to believers, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That special presence will not depart, but even his general presence is, is there till the end if you will call out to him. There's no distance that can separate us from God's presence. There's no death, no darkness can separate us. In fact, verse 11, he brings up the darkness. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. That could apply to dark times. Think about something that makes you fear. This speaks to that. Whatever would make us fear, which the dark often would in those days. You need to remember God is with you. God is near. He's always near. And also the image of darkness in Scripture. The Bible talks about how sinners love the darkness and they don't want to come to the light. They love the darkness because they think that people can't see, but God sees. And he sees all sin as bright as day. You can't get away from this God. You can't hide. Ruth Bell Graham wrote a poem based on these verses and also based on the prodigal son, bringing that together in Luke 15. Fleeing from you, nothing he sees of your presence as he flees. Choosing his own path, how could he know? Your hand directs where he shall go. Thinking he's free, free at last. Unaware that your hand holds him fast. Poor prodigal, seeking a where from whence. How does one escape omnipresence? 
waiting for darkness to hide in night, not knowing with you dark is as light. We can pray for prodigals to that end and knowing that God has not given up on them and God is there and we can't get out from him. We can't get out from under God's spirit. We also can't take God's omnipresence out of anywhere. And so I've, I've heard, and maybe you, some of you have spoken these terms, but I hear well-meaning people saying, you know, all the problems in America are because we took God out of public schools. You know, as I read Psalm 139, what I see is no one can truly take God out of anywhere or anything. God is and always will be in every school. He is there whether or not we pledge allegiance under Him. He is in every courtroom, even if they've taken down those Ten Commandments monuments all over this nation. He is at every atheist meeting. Even though they don't believe in Him, they're, they're suppressing the truth. Their conscience is testifying that He is there. He is there. And let that encourage you, if you're in a public school or in, in the public square, to, to pray and to talk about Him because He is there, even though they don't want to acknowledge it. And so don't fear. Don't freak out that the world is trying to flee out from under him. Because that's to be expected, but it's also a futile effort. They can't do it, and they won't. He's there. So that takes us from God's omniscience and God's omnipresence to our obedience. Because the God who is all-present everywhere commands repentance. The question is, will you obey? Will you still keep trying to walk in the darkness? If you think you can live in private sin, you need to know He's present. You need to know He promises your sin will find you out. When our kids were little, we went through the catechism for boys and girls that asked this question, where is God God is everywhere. Can you see God? The answer is no, I cannot see God, but He always sees me. Boy, if we as adults actually believed that, lived like we believe that, meditated on that God is everywhere, God always sees me. If we really believe that, that would affect and change how we live, if we really believe that truth. That he sees in your bedroom, he sees in your living room when you're all by yourself. He's there when you're sitting there with the remote. He's, he's right next to you. Or when you think you're all alone on your phone, he is there. What you do on a small screen, there's a big God who is always nearby. And also wherever you go in your mind, you can't go somewhere in your mind that he doesn't see. So Herman Bovink years ago wrote this, When you wish to do something evil, you retire from the public into your house. You remove yourself into the room. But even in the room, you might even withdraw further into your heart where you meditate. But God is more inward than your heart. There's no place you can flee, he says, from God angry unless you flee to God reconciled. There's nowhere to flee from God if he's angry at your sin unless you flee to God who has made peace through Christ. He says, will you flee from him? Flee to him. Fleeing the wrath to come in Scripture, we're also called to flee to Christ, to run to Christ. 
To, to know that, that He is, is there with His love and His forgiveness and His grace of those who will run to Him instead of trying to run away from Him. But will you obey the call of the Gospel? 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says, When He comes at His second coming, the Lord Jesus will bring vengeance on those who do not obey the Gospel. Do you obey the Gospel? We know John 3.16, God so loved the world. The end of John 3, the last verse says this, Those who do not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on them. If you don't believe in the only begotten Son, if you don't obey the Son, there is wrath that is abiding on you now, and there is wrath to come if you do not turn and believe and trust Him. And for unbelievers, death means hell. And don't think you can get away from God there. God is present to punish even there. Not His special presence to bless. There's none of that in hell. But it's interesting. When wrath comes in Revelation, the the image is people are trying to get away from God's presence. So in Revelation 6, they're trying to get away from the presence of, of Him on the throne and the Lamb. And they're begging that big boulders would come and crush them. Because they think if we can just either... First they try to hide in the caves and the rocks. But then they're just thinking, it would be better if I get crushed by boulders. Because they think they're going to get away from the presence and the face of the one who is bringing judgment. But they can't. They cannot flee. They cannot get away from the omnipresent judge. Who even if they die will still be bringing Wrath upon them. And so at the end of Revelation 20, it says, Earth and sky flee away from His presence. But that's the very passage that presents all sinners standing before judgment. In other words, even if earth and sky flee away, they cannot flee their accountability before God. And that is a sobering truth. But the wonderful truth is this, that Jesus came from heaven to earth to live and to die for sin. And then he rose. His soul was not left in Sheol, another psalm says. And then on Easter morning, he took the the wings of the dawn, if you will, the wings of angels to announce the, the good news that he is risen indeed. And he comes to Thomas and he shows him his his hand. And, and he, he led them to Galilee. And it's there in Galilee where he, he tells them to be witnesses. And he says, for behold, I am with you Always, even to the end of the age. So the Lord Jesus is going to go back to heaven, but he's going to be with them. He's still here with them through his spirit and through that special presence. And and so if you repent, if you will trust him and come to him, there is grace. Even if you've come to the end of yourself, you feel like you're at the bottom. There's grace like Jonah who cried out for grace in the uttermost, deepest part of the sea, in the belly of a great fish. And so we sing, what a Savior. Hallelujah. What a friend who is saving, helping, keeping, loving. He will be with me to the end. That's the glorious truth. He's with you in that way. If you know him as Savior and Lord. He is with you. Imagine imagine what it would be like if you actually had Jesus in the flesh, with you. Imagine if you were riding in your car, you had Jesus next to you, you could talk with him. Or you're going into a difficult situation, you've got Jesus actually next to you. We have that privilege. He is really there, even though we can't see him. He is there, he is near. Think of, think of Peter. Think of Peter when Jesus wasn't next to him on that night 
When he was betrayed, he's before the servant girls. We talked about this in Sunday school. He fears, he cowers, he denies the Lord. But it was just hours earlier when Jesus is next to him, these soldiers come and he takes his sword out like he's going to go after him, like he's going to fight them all off. He was emboldened and empowered, maybe foolishly so, because the Lord was with him. But Peter came to understand, I think, even as the Lord then teaches him and he tells him to put away his sword, that's not the way of my kingdom, but he goes to heaven. He says, I will be with you to the end of the age. And so Peter, again, now stands up before some of the people who, who killed Jesus. And there's not just one or two of them. There's thousands of them. And Peter boldly preaches the gospel to him. And he quotes this from Psalm 16 while he's doing it. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Peter learned that the Lord was with him. And so Peter then in his, his 1 Peter 3 says, when you're, when you're going to witness to someone, don't be fearful. He says, set apart Christ as, as Lord and, and be ready to give that answer. Peter had learned that. He had learned the Lord was with him. If we, if we will set him there before us, he is with us. And I think whatever you fear, whatever you struggle, there's situations where you're anxious, where you're fearful. I was talking to another person about this last night and, and, and the night before. If you're struggling with a sin, if you actually believe Jesus was there with you in that struggle and you were to ask him for, for help, that would change everything. If you just believe this truth in that moment that he's there and you can talk to him and he's there to help and talking with another person just fearful and, and trying to help them understand the Lord is with you. You're not alone. You're not going to be left alone. He is there with you. If we really believe this, it not only can affect how we live, it will affect how we live. God, help us to live this truth. The problem is we live like he's not there. We forget about that. I remember many years ago, driving to church and I was arguing with my wife on the way to church thinking there was no one else who could see that fight or see my face and we're here to stop light and I hear a little honk next to me and it's a friend from church and I looked over at him and I was still uh, in the middle of that but I, I stopped at that moment because I realized there was someone else there and watching, and the point of that is you can stop when you actually realize there's someone else watching. You can stop that sin when you realize the Lord is watching. That wasn't this morning, just so you know. That was, that was a, long, a long time ago. But it, we know that can happen at any time. And so we will change if we believe Psalm 139. Just like you might change the channel quicker if there's certain people in their living room. Remember, God is always with you. Maybe you're changing what you're talking about because someone else comes into the conversation. Maybe you shouldn't be talking about that. Someone else comes, you change. We can change when we bring, if we can bring the Lord into our conversations. That should change how we're talking. And here's something as parents that we know. When, when, when our kids know we're watching, and maybe we even remind them, and then they just look right at us, and they just go ahead and do it anyways. That is, that's defiance. But you see, when we know 
God is watching us. Sometimes even the conviction kicks in right then, and, and we know, and it's like we're looking right at him, and we're just going to do it anyways, even though we know we're watching. That's a dangerous place to be. And so David prays in another place, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Don't let them rule over me. Lord, don't let me be hardened to. Don't let me forget this truth. Help me to live in light of your presence. If you're seeking to be obedient, or if you're confessing when you're not, There's actually great comfort in this great truth because we all fall short. Maybe even this morning, undoubtedly many, many many times we will in the weeks ahead. But here's the comfort of verse 10 of God's presence, that his hand shall lead me. Like David, same phrase from Psalm 23, you shall lead me beside the still waters. He knew that as a shepherd boy. He had the Lord as his shepherd who was present with him when he faced danger, when he faced dark valleys, when he faced this nine-foot-six-whatever-inch guy defying the armies of the living God. He knew that God was with him. When he had to flee from his li- for his life from Saul, he knew that God was with him. This is the one who is writing this, who would learn this. And, and the, the hand here is a little, little bit different word. It's God's power. It's God's presence that guides, that leads, is one who has the whole world in his hands, also has you and me, brother and sister, in his hands. He is holding us. I think of when I, one of my daughters was little, and I, I was walking through a, a garage, and I, I wanted them to hold my hand. She didn't really want to hold my hand. I'm, I'm holding her hand, and then all of a sudden this car starts up, and it was kind of a loud, and all of a sudden she's holding onto my hand now. That I was going to hold on to her hand no matter what. She wasn't getting away. But I think in those times, we, we cling back. We need to hold on to him. But I was going to hold her hand whether or not she held mine. But we need to cling to him. And the end of verse 10 says, Your right hand shall hold me. He's always at hand. And his hand of strength gives us strength. And so another psalm says, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me. Sovereign Lord, my refuge. And that psalm that Peter quoted from on the day of Pentecost says, if we set the Lord continually before us, that's what makes us not be shaken. That's what helps us rest secure. And then he goes on to say, in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So this is the good news. There's, there's not only security and safety there, and we can rest secure, but there is joy. The, the, the hand, the right hand of the Lord is the place of joy. So may God help us to trust him, to really believe that he is all-knowing and that he is all-present and that he is all-powerful and all-loving. Amen. Amen. Let's pray to him. And God, I, I just pray the words that this psalm ends with that you inspired. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the Son of David. Amen.